We're beginning here on the top of Samachem and Aleph. The Gemara begins, Tanya, Hamudar Hana'ami Chavero, person who is restricted enough from his friend, ain't matirin lo, elabifanav. We're not matir the nether except in front of him. Now this, this resonates or this triggers in our memory things that we saw back in Moed Katan with regards to Chayrim. That with regards to Chayrim also, the Gemara says over there that with her matir the Chayrim, you can only do it in front of the individual is put into Chayrim. And there, the Shonim talk about two reasons as to why that is the case. And over here, the Yerushalmi brings two reasons with regards to Mudar Hanat, and they seem to be the similar reasons. Over there by Chayrim, it discussed the fact that we want the person to know that the Chayrim has been released, so they doesn't suspect people who violate the Chayrim, that they don't care about the Chayrim, that they're violating the Chayrim, so that he should know that the Chayrim has now been released. And that's why these people are interacting with him. In addition, there was the aspect of Busha. The fact that we put the person into Chayrim also requires us to take him out of Chayrim and that we have to see him eye to eye and that we have to acknowledge what has happened and what he's gone through and that person has to also be a part of it. And therefore it has to be done face to face. Yerushalmi brings the similar reasons over here with regards to Mudar Hana'ah that one is a problem of Chashad. If we're not matu the nether before him, then we'll have a problem that he'll think that people are violating the nether or the person who took the nether is violating the nether. So in order to avoid that chashad, we have the nether has to be, we have to be matu the nether before him or in front of him. In addition, Yerushalmi brings the other aspect of busha, that we want the person to be embarrassed to be matu the nether, because we don't want him being matu the nether so easily, or we don't want it to be a free type of situation or fluid situation in which he's able to be matu the nether anytime he wants. And therefore the aspect of busha plays in here as well. Now, the word bifanav, can have two meanings over here. You can see that the Rosh quotes the Rebbe Lezer Mimitz, and the Tosafot quotes a similar Dea, which is, That you need his knowledge. It's not that you physically have to be in front of him, but you need his acquiescence to the fact that you're being matir the neder. So that's one possibility as to what the word bifanav means. And then the word bifanav wouldn't let, literally mean in front of him. It would mean with, his permission or with his knowledge. The other possibility of Bifanav means literally in front of him. And that's the Shita that the Rosh favors. He says, He took a Nedar Hana in front of him. So the Rosh thinks, first of all, that the Torah is an issue for the individual themselves to get the Hatarat done. And the Bifanav literally means in front of him, that it's the physical presence of the other individual which is important over here. So again, you have the two possible reasons. And then on top of that, you have the two possibilities here of what Bifanav means. Bifanav could be Midato, with his knowledge, with his acquiescence. Or Bifanav can be, or Lifanav could mean that it has to be physically present, or it has to be physically in front of him. And the two might be connected meaning that the reason of chashad would not require physical presence, they might only require that he knows about it, knowledge about it. And therefore, the dato over there wouldn't mean acquiescence, but simply informing him about the fact that, that the nether is now mutar. On the other hand, if you think the reason is because of the bushah, bushah is particularly acute when the individual is present, and therefore you would require the presence of the individual. And the Ran connects the two reasons to these two possibilities of explanation. Now, Midato also can have two meanings, which means that if you say Bifanav means Midato, Midato can simply be informative, that you have to let him know about the information. 
Amidato might mean that you need his acquiescence, you need his permission in terms of Hatarata Neder. And that relates to the nature of the Neder over here. The Rebbein Utam puts special emphasis on this, so that in an instance where a person does him a tova, and then he takes the Neder in order to pay back, or in return for that tova, then you can't have the person be matter the Neder without the permission of the other party. Because the other party, in a sense, is a party to the nether, because the nether was taken because of them, or because of some consideration that the person wanted to repay that individual. So then if you're matter the nether, then in a sense you defeat the purpose of the nether, and that would not be permissible. And so therefore, the Rebbeinu Tam notes over here that in a case where the other individual is involved in the nether, or it affects another party, then you would need the permission of the other party, and then the bifanab would mean midato. Midato means with his acquiescence. So that might be the case here. The Rambam thinks that the scope of this halacha is broad, and this applies to any neder that has to be done bifanab because of the din of chashad. But many of the Rishonim believe, like what you're suggesting over here, which is that, like the Rabbeinu Tam says here, that the only time you really need a bifanab is when there is a tova involved. And that tova involved is what generates the necessity for you to have a midato or bifanav. And that based on the next examples that the Gemara is going to bring, that limits the scope of the statement to situations in which there's another party involved. And that other party is a somehow connected or beneficiary or has a stake in the net there. And that's the case then where this is said, so that the other party can object to the hatarat net there. And because of that, that's why this statement is made. Now, the truth is, the fact that it's said by a mudar ha-na'amecha makes it harder to say that, because that's more of a generic statement about a nether. You have the examples brought by the Gemara over here conform to what you're saying of limiting the scope. And that's why you have a machlok, that Rambam thinks it's broadly applicable, any nether, whereas some of the Rishonim and the Rabbeinu Tam amongst them says that it has to do only in a case where there's a tova involved, where the other party has some sort of vested interest here, and that's based on the examples, which is Minahani Mile. How do we know this is true? Hashem says to Moshe when he's in Midian, should go back to Mitzrayim, because the people that want to kill you have died. So those people that want you or want to hurt you already are out of the picture. He says, You took the nether in Midian. Go and then be matir your nether in Midian. How do we know that Moshe took the nether? And this connects back to what we spoke about yesterday, that Moshe took a nether. Where do we see that Moshe took a nether? That we find in the Pasuk, when Moshe comes to Midian, Yitro says, Where's that man that saved you at the well? You should call him, and then he should eat with us. Moshe agrees. Bayoel is the acquiesces. He agrees. He consents to stay with Yitro. And then Yitro gives him his daughter, Tzipora, as a wife. So the Gemara here is going to dodge him for the word Yoel. Why did Moshe have to consent over here? Moshe is the beneficiary of the goodness that Yitro is providing. The one that really needs to consent is Yitro. Yitro has to consent to keep Moshe here. Why is it the other way around that Moshe is agreeing 
to stay by Yitro. So the Gemara Darshan's from that word Voyoel, that doesn't literally mean that he agreed to stay or that he consented to stay, but rather he consented to something that allowed him to stay. And what is that consent? That is a nether that he took that he wouldn't leave without first seeking Yitro's permission. So Vayel Moshe ain Allah el The word Allah, that's what they're saying, is the shorish of the word Vayoel over here is Allah, is a shvu'ah dichtiv. Now the Gemara here brings a proof pasuk, which is not necessary. The word Allah, meaning shvu'ah, you can go to Parshat Sota in the Torah, and you can see the word Allah there is used as a shvu'ah. So you don't need any proof that the Allah is a shvu'ah. So then, what are they bringing here? They're bringing a proof from a situation in which they're going to discuss this further, which is in Yechezkel, when it talks about the problems of the king or the individuals at that time, it says that Hashem says about the king that he says, he says, so he brings him into a covenant that he will not rebel. That's what it seems to be. That he places him in as a vassal king, and the commitment that he makes to Buchanetzer is that he won't rebel against Buchanetzer as the vassal king. That seems to be contextually what's happening there in Yechezkel. And sure enough, Tzidkiyahu ignores that and violates the covenant that he established with Nuchanetzah. But here the Gemara is saying, And then, it says in Divrei Yamim, And this is at the, the end of the life, describing the problems that Tzidkiyahu had caused. It says there, there's 11 years that he reigned in Yushalayim. Those are the 11 years from the first Galiot, that of Yoyachin and Yoyakim. And then you have the 11 years until the Galut Zidkiyahu, which happens with the Churban Beit HaMikdash. So that's the 11 years of his role. The problem with this king is that he just doesn't submit himself to Yermiyahu Hanavi, who's telling him what he's supposed to be doing. He also rebels against the Buchanetzer. Not only does he rebel against Hashem, he also rebels against Buchanetzer. Who had had him take an oath with Hashem. And he was stubborn, and he hardened his heart, and he did not return to the ways of Hashem. And because of that, he and all the Kohanim and all the leaders of Yerushalayim are thrown out and eventually Tzidkiyo is caught by Nebuchadnezzar trying to escape the city. So Naimai Mardute. The Gemara wants to know what was exactly this rebellion. Now the Pashtut is, it's very simple. His rebellion, his rebellion is that he revolts against Nebuchadnezzar. He decides that he's no longer to be a vassal king to Nebuchadnezzar. He seeks the help of Paro in the south and he tries to create an alliance to militarily overthrow Nebuchadnezzar, get rid of Nebuchadnezzar's rule. That's a simple shot, and that's what seemingly happened over here. Gemara is asking over here, but what was that that Tzidkiyahu did? Partly because when it talks about the Mered, it compares it to his Mered Bashem, which is that Tzidkiyahu did something wrong 
with regards to his relationship with Hashem, which makes it sound that he also did something wrong with regards to his relationship with Bilchanetzai. And the merit over here is not simply a military type of merit. It's not simply a rebellion involving all of Kaiso, but there's some sort of personal affront or personal rebellion that's taking place. And so what is that? That's what the Gemara wants to know. Tidkiyahu happened to walk into or notice or caught a glimpse of the fact that Benuchad Netzar was eating a live. Now what that means, yeah, in the Gemara can mean one of two things. Chaya can mean alive. Chaya can also mean raw. And that's what Rashi brings both interpretations down. Arnava Chaya is Echenu Mibushelet, that is raw. Vidame Chaya Mamash, Shachalu Tokushi Chaya. He ate it while it was still alive, he plucked it off. It was in violation of one of the Shiva Mitzvot Benenach. But more importantly, it seems that this was an embarrassing thing because of the fact that he was doing something that was not considered to be normative behavior. And since he was doing something that was very strange, it was embarrassing. So now, Amarle Ishtabali, the lo megalit ilavai, that take a nether that you will not reveal that which you know about me. And none of this will get out. No word will get out of there. Ishtabo. So he agreed. Tzidkiyo agrees to that. Then, Tzidkiyo was suffering greatly from having to hold in this information. It's interesting. I don't know if this is some sort of psychological thing that he couldn't hold in the information. He knew a secret and he had to disclose it. Or because it was an embarrassing thing about Nebuchadnezzar. And since he was a vassal king to Bukhanetzar, this was part of his rebellion, and this helped him to garner support from others. It's not clear what exactly was prompting to yell this tremendous need that he needed to reveal it, but for whatever reason, it was giving him headache. He couldn't sleep at nights, and he wanted to reveal this information. Itchil Ashvuate. So he went again and got a Hatarat Nether or Hatarat Shvu'ah in order to release this information. Ve'amar. And sure enough, he released the information. He told other people about this. Shama Nebuchadnezzar. As always, the word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar that that's what Sidkiyo did. People are denigrating him, making fun of him about this issue. And he knew there was only one person in the world that had this information. That was Sidkiyo. Shalach Vaiti Sanhedrin with Sidkiyo. He goes out and brings Sidkiyo and the Sanhedrin to Bavel. Which actually, in the story in Melachim, the parallel story in Melachim Bet, we just read from Divrei Yamim, in the parallel story in Melachim Bet, where he's caught, it says that Nebuchadnezzar comes to lay siege to the city of Yerushalayim. And then, Chodesh, on the ninth day, Tisha Ba'av, then things were at a Uh, at a pivotal point when there was no longer anything to eat. They breached the gates. Sorry about that. It was on this 9th of Tammuz. Sorry about that. The famine became too much in the city. Nobody had anything to eat. And the city was breached. That leads to the question about why we keep Shiva Sarbet Tammuz. As to why, whether that's because in the second bite there was Shiva Sarbet Tammuz, or according to the Yushalmi, Tosafa quotes this in the Gemara and Tanit, that they lost count. The real count was the 17th, but because of the famine, 
the people lost count and they thought it was the ninth. So the Navi writes the date that the people thought it was, even though it was really the seventeenth. So he tries to escape. Sidkiyahu tries to escape the city through some sort of tunnel or escape exit out of the city. He gets as far as Yericho. And the plains of Yericho is where they catch up with him. So they take him to Nebuchadnezzar and to Bavel. They speak to him about some sort of adjudication. So Mishpat over here, the literal or what the meaning is in the Pasuk, means that they're taking him to task for what he did and for the rebellion. On the other hand, you could interpret over here is that Nebuchadnezzar calls Tidkiyahu and the Sanhedrin to come before him be mishpat, to adjudicate or to deal with this situation about the Shvuah that Tidkiyahu had taken. And then obviously He's taken into Bevel into captivity. He's locked up. His eyes are poked out and all his children are shechted in front of him. It's a terrible end for Tidkiyahu. Now, it says here, Shalach, Vaiti Sanhedrin, Vitzidkiyahu, Malon. Hazitun Maika Avid Sidkiyahu. You see what Sidkiyahu is doing? Lav Hochi Ishtaba. Isn't this the nether of the Shuha that he took that he would not reveal the information? Bishma Dishmaya. Shalom Egalina. He took it in the name of the God of Heavens that he would not reveal it. I mean, they took in the shame of Shem. How is he violating this? Amalei, Amrulei. The Sanhedrin says back to him, Ishtale Ashwata. They said back to him that he got a Tarat Shuha. It's not a problem. You can do that? You can release a Shvuah? You can undermine? You can retract a Shvuah? They said, yes, there is such a concept. So they say, he says to them, wait, are you allowed to do that in front of the individual? Or you can do that even not in front of the individual? Meaning that the nether here was taken as a promise to keep a secret of Nebuchadnezzar. When you are matter the nether, you allowed to be matter the nether without my knowledge or without me being present. I'm a lady fan up. It has to be done with you being present. I'm alone, batun, my batun. So he says to the Sanhedrin, well, what happened here? You guys were matter the shvua, even though I wasn't present or even without my knowledge. So my time, uh, lo, I'm written the tzidkiyau. How come he didn't tell us the tzidkiyau? Why didn't you reject his hatarat shvua because of the lack of me being present, or my knowledge. Miyad. So then, they are punished. And here again, we quote, Ninyana Diyoma, quote from the Pasuk in Eicha, which is, Yeshvu la'aretz, Yeshvu la'aretz, Yidmu zikne rusham, Chagru sakim, Ridu la'aretz rushan, Betulat Yerushalayim. So that the, Zikne Batzion are Yeshvul Aretz. They've been thrown to the ground. They've been dismissed or crushed in this way because they didn't act appropriately over here. The Balea Tosafot already asked, and what was the Sanhedrin thinking? Obviously, they know the din that you have to do it bifanav. So then why did they do it? Or why did they agree to be matter the Shvua for Tzidkiyahu? So Tosafot gives a number of options over here. One of those options, Tzikiyahu was in tremendous pain. 
And it causes him to then be batel mimelechet shamayim. He wasn't able to do mitzvot. He wasn't able to do anything. It was eating him up alive. And therefore they felt that it was there was a necessity. That it was a tsar gadol. And therefore for that type of reason they were matir the nether. dvar mitzvah. As if it's for a dvar mitzvah. Where for a dvar mitzvah we are matir nether. Or the other thing is that the king told them, and you listen to the king. Now, truthfully, they should have looked into it a little more carefully, but nevertheless, they were doing it as, quote-unquote, a mitzvah because they were listening to the king. So they call it, or what's otherwise known as a dvar mitzvah. And since it was a dvar mitzvah, therefore they allowed Tiao to be matir the vuah, even though, again, they really should have checked into it more carefully. He pulled out the mattresses from under them, meaning that they lost their stature, they lost their comforts, uh, they were thrown to the ground, and that's what how they were treated. Now, out of this comes a number of halachot, one of which we already discussed, which is this idea that maybe this requirement of doing bifanav only applies where there's another individual involved, like by the case of Moshe, where Yitro is the other party involved, in the case of Tzidkiyahu, where Nebuchadnezzar is the other party involved. And maybe that's a limitation in when you need Bifanav. That's number one. Number two is, when a person goes in and is Matir Eshvuar or Neder in this instance, when they're not supposed to. They're supposed to do it Bifanav. But they do it Shalom Bifanav. What is the din? Is the din that the Neder is Mutar? And that it goes, it's effective, the Hatarat Nedarim, even though they're not supposed to do it Bidiyavad? Or is it not effective at all? So the Ron here quotes both opinions, and he says seemingly from the case of here that it worked, even though they shouldn't have done it, because Tzidkiyahu goes ahead and discloses the information after their matir is nether. So it sounds like that even though they were supposed to do it bifnei Nebuchadnezzar, nevertheless they, once they had done it, it was a done deal, and he was allowed to bid the avad, disclose the information, and the hatarat goes through. So based on that proof, they Ron brings many opinions that think that that's the case, that Bidiyavad, it is mutar. You can see that in the, the Rosh, says that. Kushu b'fanav matiro ba'okochov interachtato. Where's this? The Rosh says. B'tzarech shiatiro lo l'chatchila b'fanav. Chatchila, you have to do b'fanav. Bidiyavad, if you don't do b'fanav, it works. And the Balayato Safot seemingly say, a similar item, similar idea here. And others, others suggest something similar, that it's bidiyavad, it works. On the other hand, the Raivad disagrees, and the Raivad says that it doesn't work bidiyavad. So then what happened with Tzidkiyahu? He says, look what happened to them. Look what happened to Tzidkiyahu, and look what happened to the Sanhedrin. They didn't act appropriately, and therefore they were killed, dismissed. They were not dealt with in a kind manner. And that's because they did the wrong thing over here. And so the rabbit says, you can't bring a proof from this case because their end should shed light on what they did, that they did something wrong and they were completely incorrect over here. And therefore the rabbit believes that if you do, if you're Matthew the Neder, Shalob it does not work. And even Bidiyavad, it doesn't work. So here you have Machogat Rishonim as to whether it works, depending on how you view the proof text or the case that the Gemara brought over here. Do you view that as corroborating the fact that if, it, if you do it, Bidiyavad, it works? Or do you say, look, the, the end for Tzidkiyahu and the Sanhedrin were not so pleasant, and therefore maybe they didn't act appropriately, and maybe you would not say that. In addition, the question of being matir and ned there here with regards to a goy. In the case of Moshe 
and Yitro over there, it's not a question because both, neither of them were quote-unquote Jewish at the time because it was pre-Harsinai. But in the case of Tzidkiyahu and Nebuchadnezzar, there you're dealing with a Jew and a non-Jew. What is the status over there? So there's some that say that the same rules apply. That just like by a Jew, if there's another party to the nether or that has a vested interest in the nether, you can't be matir the nether with that other party. And the same will be true with the guy. And that's what was the case by Nebuchadnezzar. Others suggest that technically, and this is carefully, listen to this, that technically you do not require the acquiescence or the presence of the guy because he's not a party to Matan Torah, to Har Sinai, and to the rules of Nidarim. So you could be matir the nether even without him being present. But, and this is the big but, if it leads to a Chilul Hashem, then you can't do it. So like the case of Tzidkiyahu and Nebuchadnezzar, it led to a huge Chilul Hashem, and therefore it wasn't allowed, it wasn't permitted. So even though technically it might be allowed, there's an overarching restriction of Chilul Hashem. And in most instances, where you have Hatarat and there where the person doesn't know about it, or is not made a party to the Hatarat and Nidarim, it's going to end up in Chilul Hashem. And therefore it would not be permitted because of Chilul Hashem, and actually might result in something worse. Meaning that violating the nether and the hatarat, meaning that the hatarat nether, which might be permissible and allow you to do this, might result in a chilul Hashem, which is significantly worse. And therefore, the nether might be binding just from the perspective of chilul Hashem. All right, next Mishnah. There's certain things that Pashtut Amishnah is that they look like nolad, but truthfully, they're not lodad. And the Chachamim do not agree with him. You can see over here that there's already an alternate girsa, which is the Chachamim Modim Lo. That the Chachamim agree to his position. And that's because in the end we're going to paskin like the sheet of Rabbi Meir over here. So either you have to say that we paskin like the sheet of Rabbi Meir because the Gemara basically follows his position and seems to just argue within his position. Or you have to say that in truth, the Girsa and the Mishnah is the Chachamim Modimlo, and that's what generates the fact that the Aloha is like Rabbi Meir, because the Chachamim agree with him, and they don't disagree with him. But you find both Girsa Oath, whether the Chachamim actually disagree or not, is unclear. Now, the Mishnah gives examples of what he's speaking about. Kate said, Amar Kunam She'eni Nosed Plonit. I will not marry so-and-so, takes the nether. Shavira, her father is an evil person. He's a really bad person. Amrlo, they tell him, mate, he died. Oh, Shasa Shuvah, or he did Shuvah, and he's no longer this bad guy. Kunam, the bait zesh, ani nechnas. Takes the nether, I'm not going into that house. Shakelev rabitocho, because he's got a bad dog in there. There's a really dangerous dog in there. Oh, Shanachash betocho, there's a snake living in it. Amrulo meta kelev, the dog died. Oh, shneraga nechash, or the snake was killed. Harein kinolad, veinan kinolad. They seem like nolad. They seem like to be new information, or something has changed in the circumstance. But einan kinolad. Nevertheless, we do not deem them to be nolad. Then once again, vein chachamim modim la, the chachamim don't agree to him, or the alternate girsa is chachamim modim la. So the way that the Rambam in the Parish of Mishnayot describes this is, the reason that Rabbi Meir's position is this way is because Harehu Kamish Nishbal tonight. So it's a person as if he took the Tshvuah tonight. 
he makes a statement associated with the nether, which he does not directly correlate with the nether. He takes the nether and he gives some sort of background information or context to the nether. He doesn't specifically tie the nether to that information because if he did that, he would have said, Konam she'eni noset ponit, kolzman shaviara, as long as her father is evil. That would have tied the nether directly to her father being bad. Over here, it just makes a statement of fact associated with it. And what we're doing is tying the two together. That's what the Rambam says over here, that it's hariu kamishnish bal tonight. It's as if the person put a tonight or a condition built into the nether. So then, based on the way that the Rambam learns, he says, ve'enu tzarich hafara. And therefore, they don't need hafarat nether. The pashtut hamishnah, you can see that in the other Rishonim, we'll show you in a second, is that you need hafarat nederim over here. And the hafarat nederim that we're going to use is the context or the information that he gave us. Which we say to him, if you had known that the father would die, would you have taken the nether? And the answer would be no. And that would be a petach, the nether, and we'll discuss why it's not, no light in a second. But, the way that Rambam learns it is that it's as if there is a built-in tonight, so much so that he no longer needs hatarat nidarim or hafaram because it happens automatically. Once the father dies, the meaning of his nether is no longer valid because of that context in which he placed the nether. And everybody depends on that. That makes it sound like the Rambam had the girsa that we have, which is modim chachamim. That the chachamim agreed to Rabbi Meir's position because he says everybody agrees to this position of Rabbi Meir. So let's see now the Gemara. Kunam sheni nene kule mate noladhu. The Gemara says death is nolad. Death is not something that he could have anticipated when he took the nether. Death is not something that we expect or a person should have reasonably assumed would happen, and therefore it's deemed to be nolad based on what we saw yesterday in the Mishnah about the definition of olad, and as we discussed yesterday with regards to mita. That over the long term, everybody dies. And that's considered to be a fair assumption in terms of a reasonable assumption. But in the near term, that somebody should die is an unlikely scenario. And therefore, it's not considered to be shriach or mitzuyah. And therefore, it would be deemed to be nolad. Because it's something that a person, when he took the nether, would not have had that reasonably in mind. Or would not have considered that possibility that the person would die. Again, we discussed yesterday, Tosafot in the beginning of Yoma discusses that with regards to the wives of the Kohen Gadol, and in Gitin, as well as in Sukkah, there's Tosafot discusses this issue of Mitah, when is Mitah considered to be Shriach, when is it not considered to be Shriach, but it's clear here from the Gemara that over the short term, nobody expects someone to die unless they're a Goseis, unless they're on their deathbed. So, Amar Ravuna, Naseh Kitole Nidro Bedavar. So Ravuna says it's as if he premised the nether on this information. So we saw in the Rambam how literally he takes that. He says that it's premised on that information so much so that it's as if the tnai is built in. And since it's a tnai, you don't even need a tarat nidarim. It happens automatically. On the other hand, others suggest over here, it's as if he had done something like that, which is, it's not a full-fledged tnai. That's why you need hatarat nidarim over here. And that's shata mishnah here is that you require hatara. The rosh over here is clearly negating what the Rambam suggests that you don't need hatara over here. He says it's like a tnai, but it's not a full-fledged tnai. On the other hand, Rabbi Yochanan Amar says that it's a case shekvar mate. He already had died. Or he already had done tshuva. The case here is the case where they tell him after he took the nether, you know what, her father's already dead. 
you know what? Her father already changed his ways. He's done tshuva. So over there, in that case, it's not no lot because the information was available at the time that he had, took the nether. He just didn't know the information. And that's why it's not a case of no lot over here. As Tosfot explains, it's a nether by mistake. And now here he says, Over here he would not eat any hatarat nether because the whole premise of the nether is mistaken. The nether it's as if he died after the nether. That you could make a mistake. Despite that fact, we don't worry about it. And the Chachamim disagree. And the Chachamim say that we do worry about that. And where it goes there, also the fact that he got the information after the nether, to a case where the information really happened after the nether. In a case where the person had died after the nether, then it would have been no lad. So in a case where the information is that he pre-deceased the nether, then even though technically the nether is mutar, even according to the Chachamim, there goes there up to a case where he only died after the nether, and they don't allow the nether to be mutar, or they don't allow it to be deemed a nidre ta'ot, a nether of ta'ot. That's the way that Tosafot learns over here. Amazingly, the Rosh over here actually flips the position of Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim according to Rabbi Yochanan. If you look in the Rosh, he says something amazing. He says that, when you learn, like Rabbi Yochanan suggests over here, that This is the way you would explain the Mishnah. Rabbi Meir says these are like Nolad, but they're not Nolad. Even though it's not Nolad, they made it Asur like Nolad. The Gozor Rabbi Meir, mate, kvar, atulomate. He goes there, the case where he already had predeceased the nether, in a case where he had yet to die. Vein chachamim mudim lo. Chachamim don't agree. The lo gazrin and mate kvarat ulomate. They don't have this gzera. So in that instance, according to the way the Rabbi Yochanan is learning, the Rosh thinks that Rabbi Meir is the machmir over here, and the chachamim are the mekilim. And that obviously would help us in terms of pasking like the chachamim, or pasking like Rabbi Meir, because now the chachamim would be that position of Rabbi Meir. But the way that the Rosh learns is that Rabbi Yochanan not only changes the reason behind why it's not Nolad, but he also changes the whole direction of the Mishnah. According to Rav Huna, Rabbi Meir is the Mekil in the Mishnah, and the Chachamim are the ones that are Gozeratu. On the other hand, the way that Rabbi Yochanan is explaining the Mishnah, it is Rabbi Meir that's the Machmir, and the Chachamim are the Mekilim, according to the Rosh. The Ron asks a strong question here that really is not a strong answer to, is that if Rabbi Yochanan is right, then why is it called Nolad? There's no issue of Nolad over here, meaning that it's a Nidre Ta'ot. The whole problem here is a Nidre Ta'ot, and Nidre Ta'ot is a Heter. Now the Balei Tosafot, and the way that the Rosh are learning, they're explaining to you that the Gzeira is also Nolad, that it is a Nidre Ta'ot, but we're not allowing the Nidre Ta'ot to go through because there's that risk that you could mix it up with Nolad, and that's what creates the restriction over here. So that's what you'll have to explain here. Even though it doesn't seem to be a Nolad issue, it seems to be a Nidre Ta'ut issue. And now the Gemara asks, Meitiv Rabbi Abba. We have a Mishnah on Samach Vavah Manalif that says, Konam, she'eni noseh plonit, ki'ura. I take a I'm not going to marry so-and-so, the ugly one. Varehina, turns out that she's not so ugly. She's a pretty girl. Shechora, that she has a dark complexion. Varehilavana, turns out she's a lighter complexion. Kitsara, because she's short. Varihi Arukan, turns out she's tall. Mutarba, he's allowed to marry her. It's not because she was ugly and became pretty. She had a darker complexion and then had a lighter complexion. 
aruka, or she was short and turned tall. Elisha neder taot. The neder was a mistake. It was a complete mistake over here. The Lord says, Bishlamo the Rabhuna. According to Rabhuna Damar Nasek, he told any job devar. So then he explains our mission over here as the reason behind our mission is that because it's like a tonight. It's as if he, the context which he gave makes as if he put the nether or the tonight in the nether. Then I understand why we have two cases. Tana Toleni Droba Devar. Our mission is talking about that case. Bitano, the mission on Samach Baba Menalov is talking about nether taot. So I have two different cases, two different issues. They're separated. And also the din is different. In one case, Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim argue. In one case, the Chachamim agree. Hello, the Rabbi Yochanan Damar Kvar Meitz, Ukvar Asad Shuva. So the case in our Mishnah is that he already died, already did Shuva. Why do I have to talk about Neder Ta'ut in two different locations? Kasho. That's a problem. They should have combined the two of them. Now the truth is, it's not such a strong question because the fact is in our Mishnah, the Chachamim disagree, and in the Mishnah, nobody disagrees. So it must be that there is a difference between them. But the Gemara's basic question is, if they're both Nidre Ta'ot, then the Mishnayot should have been combined. Those cases should have been juxtaposed in the Mishnah because they're for the same reason. Why would you split them in the Mishnah at faraway locations, have other information in between, if they're for the same reason? Even though there's a reason to distinguish between them, there's still the same reason in the end. Now what bothers all the Rishonim is, what is the difference? Why is there a difference between the case in our Mishnah and the case of Ke'ora? So Torah support explains, over here the Rabbanan disagree, and the Mishnah and Samachva, they don't disagree. Now, why don't the Rabbanan argue over here? Because in this case, there's no reason to be gozer atu. That a case where she is ugly at the time of the nether, and then she turns pretty afterwards. He says that it's not a practical consideration. If she's ugly at the time of the nether, she's going to be ugly later on too. The likelihood that she changes from ugly to pretty later on is very unlikely. If she's of a dark complexion at the time of the nether, the likelihood that she's going to be of a light complexion later on is very low. And the same thing with if she's short at the time of the nether, the fact she's going to be tall later on, all of these seem to be implausible and things that you wouldn't go there to because it's not shriach. It's not something that's a commonplace. On the other hand, if you are Gozer because he died before the nether, also that he might have died after the nether, that is a reasonable thing that could happen. That's definitely something that is possible. Or he was bad and did shuva. that's also something that's possible. So the difference between, according to Tosafot, our Mishnah and the Mishnah further on, is this issue about the reasonability of being Gozer also. If this all happened beforehand, like in both Mishnah and Nether Ta'ot, that is a mistake, and that the information was already known at the time of the nether, then where goes there also the possibility that you didn't know that information at the time of the nether. Well, in our case of our Mishnah, if you didn't know the information at the time of the nether, it's still possible that this could happen, that he could die, that he could do tshuva, that something could change. In the other Mishnah, the possibilities of change are very low, that she was ugly and turned pretty, short, turned tall, or that she was a dark complexion turned to a light complexion. None of those seem like reasonable outcomes, and therefore they would not go there also. That's the way Tosafot explains the difference. The Ran over here brings from the Rashbo a more fundamental difference and because of the language that's used over here. So he says over here that Mishum Adamra Lamut. A bad person normally dies, and the bad person normally does chuva. It's not true by an ugly woman. She doesn't normally become pretty. 
Therefore, he didn't condition his nether on that. So unlike the Tosafot who say that it's a Gezerah Otu, the Ran says that this is an explanation even for Ravuna, that it's not considered to be a Tznai in the nether. Since he didn't consider that possibility, he wouldn't have made it a condition of his nether. And since he make it a condition of the nether, we don't say that it's a Tznai in the nether, because it's not something that he would have considered. Even though he gave us context, that context is not meaningful. That's one way that he explains it. Or, he gives a second reason, which Inami, the possibility is that the difference in the way that it's worded. In our Mishnah, it says, She'avihara. The reason I don't want to marry her is because her father is bad. On the other hand, in the upcoming Mishnah, it says that I don't want to marry Plonit Ki'ura. I don't want to marry that ugly woman. So as opposed to giving a reason for the nether, like She'avihara, which means that I'm taking the nether, I'm not marrying her because it seems that her father is bad. And that would be something like a Tznai, over here, just stating a fact. He's saying, I don't want to marry ugly so-and-so. So there he's not telling you that the reason he doesn't want to marry is because she's ugly. He's just stating a fact about it. He's telling you something about her. He's describing her. That ugly woman, that short woman, I don't want to marry her. Now, you could try to interpret from that that there was some sort of condition built into it, but it's a statement of fact about the woman. And therefore, there's a difference in the nature of the nether. In one case, he's taking a nether which describes a fact, and the fact is untrue. In our case, he's creating a tznai, a condition. And therefore, you have to look now in the condition. Is the condition true or not true? And therefore, there's a difference between the darim and why the chachamim think that there is a reason to be gozer over here and not a reason to be gozer over there. All right, now, next Mishnah. Ba'od amar Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir now brings something else, which is putchim lo min katuv shibitorah. We allow you to use psukim in the Torah or isurim in the Torah as a petach leneder. Romim lo. All of these Yisurim that are involved when you take a nether against a specific individual, not to take revenge, not to hate the individual, to love your fellow Jew, that you have to help out your fellow Jew, that he should be able to live with you, and he becomes, or Shemayani, he becomes poor, and you can't help him now because you took a nether. And you can't support him. If I had known this information, I'd you know there. In all these cases, it is mutar. Now here, all the Rishonim have to explain how we distinguish this from, number one, the cases earlier in the Masechta. Earlier in the Masechta, we said that you're not allowed to tell or use as a petach neta the fact that taking the darim is really bad. It's so bad, it's like being a rasha. It's like stabbing someone with a sword. It's like bringing a kurban on a bama. I mean, all these negative things, because that is so overwhelmingly negative that there's no person who's going to say, I, I would have taken the nether. It's going to be an iyum. It creates a certain amount of fear in the individual to the point where he's going to just say, you know what, I, I, I didn't mean to take the nether. Even though he meant to take it, he's just too scared to say otherwise. And so because of that, he's going to automatically agree to the petach the nether. So we said that that doesn't work. How come over here we don't say the same thing? Here you're bringing this. You're in violation of this. You're in violation of that. You're in violation of this. Why isn't that the same problem as we had earlier in the Masechta? That's number one. Number two is we just had in the first Mishnah of the Perak that ain't potrilo b'kvod That we don't use the kvod of a Baruch Hu as a reason for being matir nether. And this seems to be using that. We're using the Torah. We're not using a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but it seems to be a sim- of a similar vein. So the answer that the Rishonim bring is that this is different. That people 
are willing to violate an Easter in the Torah, especially an Easter in the Torah they don't consider it to be so important or so significant. They say, hey, you know what, you're in violation of Lotikom. All right, okay. Lotitor, Alright, that's not so bad. So a person is willing to admit or to say, you know what, yes, I'm in violation of that, that's fine, that's it, I'm keeping the nether. That won't cause them or that won't force them to agree that the nether was taken bitaut. That's number one. Number two is it's a difference between saying that you are face to face saying, God, I don't care about what you say, versus saying, oh, you know what, one mitzvah in the Torah is different. So for both of those reasons, the Rishonim over here distinguish between the cases here in the Mishnah and the cases earlier. The cases earlier involve too much iyum and too much pressure on the individual where we know that he's going to just say, yes, I, I never would have taken the nether. On the other hand, the cases in our Mishnah are types of Isurim that people in general are over. And since they're over these Isurim and they don't take it so seriously, then they wouldn't be a significant enough reason to say that he's going to be mati nether in every case. If he says, to, you know what, we be the nether is if he becomes poor, you're going to have to uh, support him and take care of him. So you know what he'll say? He'll say, why is that my responsibility? Everybody becomes poor is my responsibility. Let him go get parnoso like everybody else gets. Let him go to the Gabite Stucco. When he goes to the Gabbite Stucco, then he'll get his money. And I even can give money then. If I give money to the Gabbite Stucco, it won't be a sewer, and I can support him through the Gabbite Stucco. Because as long as it goes through a third party, then it's no longer a sewer to get him that money. Especially, first of all, if the Gabbite Stucco has the right to give it to whoever he wants, so then it's not being directed to him. Number two is, even if he gives it to him, it may not be a problem because it went through a third party. Or, the fact is that his money could be used for someone else, and other people's money could be used for this individual. So why is that a good enough reason to be mad to the nether? When a person falls, the first stop is not with the gabayt staka. When a person falls in hard times, he usually goes to his relatives first. And that's the way that the Bali Atosafot explained it over here. When a person becomes poor, the gabay is not the one who takes care of him right away. The individuals have to step up. In the beginning, people have to step up and take care of him, or that's going to be his first stop. And that's the way Rashi explains it over here. He doesn't go first and foremost to the Gabai, but he goes to his relatives to see if he can get help. That's going to be where he goes to first. He usually looks to his relatives. On the other hand, the Rosh words it slightly differently and says that the obligation to be mefarnesani is on the relatives first. Until the gabayim look into the matter, that until they figure out that the relatives don't have sufficient means to support him, then the gabayim steps in. So there's actually a slight nuance, but a big difference in the way that it's formulated. The way Rashi and Tosafot formulated is that the person either voluntarily goes to his relatives or that by, by the time that the Gabbite Stakha steps in, it's already been time and the relatives fill that hole in the interim. That's the way Rashi and Tosafot speak about it. On the other hand, the Rosh says that it's the obligation of the relatives to do it and the Gabbite Stakha is going to go to the relatives assess whether they have the means to support him first. And so based on that, the Rosh thinks that's an obligation on the relatives to support this Ani. And if they can't do it, then it falls to the Gabbite Stakha. So yeah, Tosafot and Rashi just say it's like a bridge. Until he gets to the Gabbai Tzedakah. But once he gets to the Gabbai Tzedakah, then it'll be with the Gabbai Tzedakah. 
the relatives are just there as a bridge to get him to the point where he can get the monies from the Gabbai Tzedakah, he can get on the rules of the Tzedakah organizations. And obviously the Nafkamina is whether there's really an obligation on the relatives to support him, and whether they are the first obligation. Can we demand of them to support him because it's their mitzvah, and their mitzvah in particular? And so for that reason, it is a good petach l'neder, because when the person falls in hard times, the person he's going to come to first is his close friends, his close relatives, and therefore you're going to be precluded from providing the support that you're supposed to, either according to the Rosh, because you're obligated to do it, according to Tosa and Rashi, because that's the, you are the natural person he's going to come to, and therefore that is a good reason to be mater neder, even though you could get it done through the Gavayt Staka, but it's just not the way of the world. It doesn't end up with the Gavayt Staka right away. You're allowed to use as a petach l'neder a person's ketubah to his wife. Individual took a neder anah from his wife. That his wife's his ketubah was 400 dinar. So he comes to Rabbi Kiva because he has to divorce his wife now because he's mudar anah from her. And that's not a sustainable marriage. And so now he has to divorce her. But when he divorces her, he's got to pay out the ketubah. He says, you want to divorce, you got to pay her ketubah. Our father left us 800 dinarim in the estate. My brother and I split the estate. I got 400 dinar, he got 400 dinar. Listen, can we give her 200 and I keep 200? At least I'll have something to live off of. Give me a chance that I can have some sort of monies to live off of here. Even if you sell the hair off of your head, it doesn't really matter. You're going to be paying her ketubah at this point. Had I known that that was the case, there's no way I would have taken that neder. And therefore, Rabbi Kiva is matir the neder over here. Tosvet over here, it says, we don't say that the payment of the Ketubah is a case of Nolad over here. Because the Ketubah already existed way beforehand, and therefore it's not a case of Nolad. Where others suggest that maybe it is a case of Nolad over here, because in general the Ketubah is only expected to be paid out in a case of death of the husband, and that is a remote possibility. Also now we've accelerated the fact that he's going to pay the Ketubah because of this divorce over here. A divorce that was caused not even by a direct need for divorce, but because of his nether hana'ah, which was an indirect involvement, and all of a sudden now he's stuck with this ketubah. And since it's not shriach for an individual to have to pay out his ketubah during his lifetime, in case of divorce, and divorce is a more remote circumstance, at least in their day it was, maybe today that would not be the case, and therefore it looks a little bit more like the case of nolad in general, but Tosavot says that it's still not deemed, or it's still not considered to be a case of nolad. Now the Gemara says, as we see in throughout Ketubot and Yevamot, that when it comes to a Ketubah, Ketubah has a lien on the property of the husband. And that is only on the real property of the husband. And that's because a Ketubah is a long-dated document. And therefore, the woman only relies on assets that, first of all, are going to stay in place, that are not going anywhere, and assets that she can track. And that refers to Karka. And therefore, the lien that the woman has through her Ketubah is only on the real property, on the Karka of the husband. Not as metaltaline. Over here we're talking about a case where he got cash. The estate dropped the 400 dinarim to him. That's cash. Those are metaltaline. And those are not mishubad to the ktubah. So why is he worried about that money going to the ktubah? That's not money that he owes to ktubah. 
that the Mishnah is talking about a case where their inheritance wasn't 800 dinar in cash, but rather it was 800 dinar worth of land. And said the land now came into his possession, that land will become encumbered to the Tuba. And that is why she had a right to collect out of that karka. Mara says, wait, that doesn't work so well with the Mishnah, because the Mishnah says, Vaktani, that even if he cut his hair and he sold his hair, then then she would be able to collect out of that. Certainly, his hair is considered to be metaltalim. That's not something that's considered to be real property. Now, this is the way I explain the Mishnah. That even if you sell your hair to support yourself, that won't change the fact that you got to pay out the Ketubah now. So, the way that the Mishnah will be read now is that he inherited Karka from his father. And inheriting karka from his father that the Ktuba has a lien on, and the woman will be able to take. And Rabbi Akiva says to him, you know what? Even if now you have nothing, you don't have a dime to your name, and you have to sell your hair in order to make a living and to support yourself, nevertheless, she's going to get everything. Her Ktuba comes first. She has the first rights over here. You're going to get nothing. So it's not that the selling of his hair is going to reduce the money that he's going to have to pay towards the Ktuba. It's just that if you have to support yourself that way, that's going to be too bad because that's the only thing you're going to have. You're not going to be able to keep anything. And because of that, he regrets having taken that nether or he didn't think that the nether would precipitate a divorce and therefore they're matir the nether based on that. Then the Gemara says, Shmami na ain the From here you would conclude that we do not leave the debtor any monies behind we don't give him basic necessities or what his basic needs are. So it just shows that we don't rip up the shark tuba, so you can't prove anything from here. What the Gemara here is, is referencing is a machloket in the Gemara in Baba Messiah as to whether when you have a debtor who is in debt for a greater amount than the value of his estate or the value of his assets, how do we deal with it? So in the modern law today, a person can declare personal bankruptcy by declaring personal bankruptcy, we protect his basic assets or his living needs. And in protecting his living needs, anything that's beyond that will be granted to the creditors. In some states, like in Florida, where they have the Homestead Act, then a person's even titled to keep his house. That if a person then declares bankruptcy, a house is considered to be a basic need of the individual. And no matter how expensive or how much is invested in the house, he's allowed to keep the house because that's protected as a basic need of the individual. We find such a thing in other places in the Torah, for instance, with regards to Arachin. If a person takes a another Arachin, where he says he's going to pay the Erech from so-and-so to the Mikdash, and he can't afford to pay it. He doesn't have sufficient funds to pay it. He goes to the Kohen. The Kohen assesses how much he can pay, and then he pays that. Now, in the assessment of the Kohen of what he can pay, the Kohen leaves out for him some basic needs. They give him a table, a bed. They give him enough money to live for a year. They give him clay and munot. They give him his tools of his trade so that he can work. And they leave him certain basic items in order to support himself. The question is, does that din of arachin, is that extrapolated over to a debtor? Now, there is a possibility of shava from the word mach, because it says over there, mach if you don't have sufficient funds, you're too poor to pay what you promised. And we also have that if you're friend falls on hard times and it becomes impoverished. So the word mach, poor or impoverished, is used in both places and therefore there might be gzeru shavu. If you have such a gzeru shavu, that 
opens up the possibility that a debtor would also be granted that right to keep his basic items or needs before we force him to pay the creditor. What the Gemara is concluding from here is the way that Rabbi Kiva phrased it to him and says, basically, you can cut your hair and sell it for your living. That's all you're going to have left. You're not getting anything. Everything is going to this woman. We're not leaving you a single item. From that, you would see We do not allow the Bachov to get some basic needs or to have a minimum standard of living, which will leave him before we start taking money for the creditors. So that would be a proof to the position that we don't leave any basic support for the individual. So along comes from Nachman Rabbi Yitzchak and says, no, 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 that's not the case. All Rabbi Kiva is saying over here is, Karim Shtar we're not going to rip up the Ktuba. Even though over here you can't pay off the full Ktuba, that doesn't mean that the Ktuba disappears. In personal bankruptcy today, or even in corporate bankruptcy today, then the debtors and creditors come to some agreement, and the debtor pays a portion or percentage of the debt he owes, what's called cents on the dollar. Whether he pays 50 cents, 70 cents, 80 cents, whatever the agreement is, and that discharges his obligation, and that clears all the debts. And that's it. What we're saying over here, or what we keep saying over here is, if you can only afford to pay a portion of the debt, that doesn't mean that we exempt you. That's not a settlement in lieu of payment to the full debt. This tuba will remain outstanding till you repay the whole thing. So yes, we'll leave you with your basic needs. That's not the right conclusion from this Gemara. All Rabbi Kiva is saying is, okay, keep your basic needs. Whatever is in excess of that from the 400 dinar, you're going to give to her. And you know the tuba is for 400 dinar. And whatever you take out for your basic needs, you're still going to owe that money to her because that tuba will be outstanding. That's what he's saying to her. And even if you have to sell your hair to make a living, we're going to keep taking money from you until you repay that tuba fully. There is no discount. There is no settlement of cents on the dollar or partial payment over here. You're going to have to fully pay out your debt to this tuba. And therefore, even if we allow you to keep your basic needs, you're still going to have to deal with this tuba until it's fully paid. And that's what it's talking about when you have to sell your hair in order to raise the income. So the Rabnachum is going to say you can't prove anything from here. It doesn't prove that you do grant him basic needs or you don't grant him basic needs. Because it could argue, okay, we don't grant him basic needs. That's the conclusion. Or... You conclude that we do grant them basic needs. It's just telling you the Chiddush here of Rabbi Kiva is that we don't allow you a settlement of a portion of the debt and then the whole thing's canceled. He's got to pay the full thing back. So he's going to pay part of it now and then the rest will remain outstanding. We're not going to cancel that debt and he'll have to pay it as he earns it or as he gets it. And therefore there's no debt relief that has been provided to this individual here. And that's how Rabbi Kiva created a Petach Neder for this individual. Okay, we're going to stop here by the Mishnah on the top of Samach Vav Amud Aleph.